Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Transforming 45. This week, you can see I don't have a human in the studio with me. We are digital. Um, and it's because this is a really incredible human who I have had the opportunity to meet just over the interwebs. Uh, but I am really looking forward to this conversation. And I am so glad that you found me um, through a podcast group so that we could have this conversation. So please welcome Dr. Faith Akpator to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So Faith, the question I always start with is, tell me your story. How did you get to where you are today? Okay. Um, it's a little long, so feel free to you interrupt me or stop me wherever you want. <laughs> um, I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, and um, I went to an all-girls school that at the time was called a unity school, meaning it was one of the schools designed to bring together the disparate communities and ethnic groups of Nigeria to be possible future leaders. Um, I had a great high school education, and um, after that, uh, my plan was to go on to university in Nigeria, but then I was also having ideas about coming to the United States to study. Um, as I was growing up, uh, we had a huge political um, impasse in Nigeria. There was a, a famous election that was annulled, and that led to all kinds of political instability. Long story short, I ended up starting, you know, and at the time, um, one of the things with the Nigerian education system is that it's very uh, narrow from high school. So you pretty much attract in a certain way. And I've always been good at science and math, but also some of the social sciences like econ. And so I somehow got tracked that I was going to become a doctor. That's what I wanted to do, a medical doctor. And so I ended up at university in Nigeria, uh, not in medicine, but in microbiology uh, at a university called University of Ilori in uh, in the middle of the country but then i um i decided i wanted to move to the united states so i transferred to the united states to a school called hampshire college in amherst massachusetts which was great culture shock <laughs> uh, but i had a great education because you could design your own program and there was some flexibility that i did not have in nigeria so i could be taking my microbiology and molecular biology classes which was my design major and i had a minor in creative writing uh, and so that's what i did uh, all through this time even from high school i was always a student journalist um, and so I continued doing that uh, when I was at Hampshire. And um, by the time I got to my senior year, so my final year of college, I had um, done my senior thesis research at Stanford University uh, in a transplantation immunology lab. So getting ready for that MD-PhD track. And then I remember that senior year just being so hard. I was always very sure of what I wanted to do next. I'm the kind of person that has five-year plans. I still do. Uh, but there was a tension there. I was not having the best time in my lab at Stanford, even though everyone was great. Um, and all I was saying was that, oh gosh, I just need to finish the senior thesis and I don't know what I'm going to do next. Um, so I was there for a semester, a summer and a January term in the lab doing my research. So I was going to come back from the final semester of my senior year to write up my project because uh, everyone does a senior thesis project at Hampshire. So in my final semester, when I got back, I decided I was going to take, a, I had never taken a formal journalism class, even though I was always a student journalist. So I decided to take a, a journalism class. And then I said, you know what? 
I have done all of this science stuff and all of this molecular biology stuff, and I'm just going to do everything I need to do and graduate and write the best senior thesis that I can, which I did. <laughs> and then I'm just going to go work in journalism. <laughs> so when I graduated, uh, before I graduated, I was able to get an internship with the radio television news directors foundation. It was an internship on Capitol Hill. And so I was able to work in the Senate radio and TV gallery. So that was my, I graduated, I moved to DC, I got that internship. And then my boss at the time, the director of the gallery uh, introduced me to news directors and uh, news executives in DC. And that's how I got my first job at ABC radio and then NBC news. And then the rest was history. I ended up going to uh, journalism school. So I attended Medill at Northwestern University ended up covering politics in DC and then Chicago for a few years. And then um, after a while, the financial crash happened. I also got a little disillusioned with how we're covering the Iraq war and some other things like that. <laughs> and so I decided that I was going to go back to school and get a PhD in political science. And now I've covered all of this politics. I actually wanted to think more systematically, more theoretically to understand what we're doing and to sort of spend some time to do a deep dive into issues as opposed to the daily deadline writing that I was used to. And so I took a year off, put all my stuff in storage, uh, traveled in uh, East and Southeast Asia, went back to Nigeria because I hadn't been in Nigeria for six years at the time, and just took a year off and figured out what I was going to do next. And that's when I applied to PhD programs, ended up at the University of Delaware uh, the following year, starting in 2010. Um, and started my PhD program in political science and international relations. And then that's how I became a political scientist. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. There are about eight different tracks that I have in my head around which way do we want to go first here? Because there's so much richness in your story. The first thing I'm thinking about, however, is... the role that we're taught we're supposed to play when we're young, right? So you have experienced multiple transformations and shifts over the course of your life. Was there a seed that was planted in you when you were young that was the truth that has shone itself throughout your transformation that maybe got covered a little by expectation? Oh, what an amazing question. Uh, I think that for me, I think the truth is that I've always been a seeker for the truth. I've always mm -hmm. been a learner, a seeker. Uh, I have always been curious. I like to say that the best thing my mom ever did to me was to, or did for me, was to stick a book in my hand before I could even talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, even though I talked early, according to her, uh, but I've always been very curious and that curiosity, I think undergirds everything, everything that I've ever done, uh, all of the experiences I've had, it's just been curious about how things work. How can they be better? Uh, how can we serve? How can we make things better for everyone? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's. I think that is true for a lot of people, right? The, I mean, people who are interested in really connecting with themselves 
and in the transformation that has to happen over the course of a lifetime, if you stay true to who you really are, is that notion of seeking and, and curiosity, right? Always being open to more than what expectation might be around the role that society says we're supposed to play. And making those decisions is not always easy because from, I'll, I'll say from my perspective, and then I'd love to hear from yours, it requires a level of trust and authenticity and vulnerability that we were not given the opportunity to try on um, as younger people. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. No, I couldn't agree more. Like you have to, you have to trust yourself. Mm. You have to, to, to trust whatever that still inside voice in you is saying, this is what you should explore. This is where you should go. Mm-hmm. And, and at least try it out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say that I do not regret any of the paths my life has taken me because who I am today is a sum total of all of that. And I am a more interesting person at the very least because of all of those things. I like to tell my students when I tell them to, you know, be curious, experience things. I like to tell them that when I met my husband, one of the first things he said to me was, you're the most interesting person I have ever met. (laughs) So at the very least, it will get you good dates. (laughs) So yes, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And what's the, I mean, that's the best reflection back you could possibly get, right? right that you are right. the most interesting person because, right. well, yeah, I'm also in a very long-term relationship, which I'm grateful for. And I'm grateful for every day that we continue to find each other interesting, right? right? Because that's what keeps a relationship going. That's a whole other, com- that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And when, I think, and this must be important for your students to see and young people to see, you know, I have two young people of my own. My oldest is 18 and heading to university in the fall. My youngest is just one year behind him. And there's still so much written around, you know, this is the decision you make. This is the track that you follow. And then the rest of your life will just fall into place. The reality is not that, right? Yeah. And how did you find the freedom to not feel like you had to walk down that one path that you initially committed to? Um, It was hard. I look back now and I say to myself, oh, wow, Faith, you were actually depressed at the time, but did not know it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. Uh, because there's like all of the expectation, right? You have, you have taken these classes, you have done this stuff. Everyone expects that, you know, you're going to be a doctor. Well, I am still a doctor, not, not just not necessarily someone who can prescribe you meds, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that you're going to be all of these things or whatever it is, whatever the path is. And you have to, to, it goes back to trust and trusting yourself and figuring out that. Um, will I do that? Can I do that? And yes, you can, right? And you also have to sort of surround yourself with, um, you know, people who will, who will help you think things uh, through. 
So for example, I'll, I'll tell a, sh a short story to sort of uh, illustrate this. When I um, applied to PhD programs <laughs> the first time, uh, I applied, I don't know how, I can't remember how many I applied to now. So this was in the fall of 2008. So I thought that I was just going to go travel in Asia for a few months. Go, you know, I applied fall of 2008. I would go travel for a few months, come back. And by fall of 2009, I'll start my PhD program. Alas, I was rejected at every single one of them. <laughs> every single one. So that could be a thing to be like, oh, I guess I guess I wasn't supposed to do this or whatever. Pack up, right? Um, but what I did was while I was traveling in Asia, I decided to go back to my old peeps. Uh, and I talked to a professor from Hampshire whose class was uh, the significant social science class that I ever took where I did a lot of writing. And I talked to her and I said, uh, here's what happened to me. What should I do? And she said, here's the thing. When you apply to PhD programs, the most important thing they're trying to figure out is if you have the research chops, if you're a good researcher. You are a good researcher. You just did not do your research in social science. So you have to go back to your senior thesis advisor and have him write a recommendation. Yes, your research was in transplantation immunology, but you, you know research. And that's what I did. So at the end of the day, we have to figure out who in our lives can guide us that we trust mm -hmm. when you are not seeing what you should see in yourself, they can see it for you and reflect it back to you. Mm. That's such an important point that, and again, I think there's so much in our culture around individualism, mm -hmm. right? That you have to do, you have to do this on your own and we don't give enough um, power into community mm -hmm. and the importance of community. And no, no one does this alone. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs to have a community because it isn't, this world is so complex and there are so many different ways of viewing it that it's necessary to have that community of people around you. So thank you for highlighting that because I think that is really really important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if, uh, so you will have students. Do you teach first year students? I do. I do okay. teach because I, I teach an introductory international relations class. So okay. I teach first years in that. So you will have students who the majority of their high school career was during COVID. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing the same value on community in this, in this cohort of kids mm. or does it look different? Um, it looks different, but I'm not sure that it's so much COVID mm. or if this is something that has been happening before and then definitely uh, COVID exacerbated it. Uh, one of the things I do in my classes, the very, the first few, at least two, two weeks. So the first three of our classes, there's something I, I, I take some time at the top of class when I do what I call housekeeping and I share with them success strategies. How will you be successful in this class? But how will you be successful in college period? And one of the things I tell them is to find a friend, <laughs> find a study buddy. And I tell them, nobody does this alone. Nobody does this alone. 
I tell, I use myself as an example. I said, until today, I have a writing partner <laughs> that we keep each other accountable because writing is also part of my job. My research is also part of my job. So we, we have to build communities for ourselves so that we can carry each other along. So I tell them that, but I, but a lot of times students will be in class and not know who their classmates are, or, you know, I will get an email and someone will say, Oh, I, I, I didn't have the notes and I missed class. And I was like, have you talked to anybody in class? Find a friend, talk to someone that will tell you how things went. Obviously come to me for office hours when you have questions, but start with talking to your friend, go make friends. Yeah. I think that that element of it, of that connection mm -hmm. is something that needs to be intentionally rebuilt mm -hmm. because they have been so, I mean, in a, in a really impressionable phase of their development, mm -hmm. they were literally separated from people mm -hmm. and told that being in community was dangerous, dangerous. right? Yeah. Not mm -hmm. just not encouraged, but literally dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, so the other, the other thing I really wanted to dive into you was your experience in politics and the media and what the role of narratives that are being told right now, right? How do we start shifting those narratives that are so fundamental, it seems, in daily reporting that is perpetuating fear that's perpetuating individualism, that's perpetuating otherness. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts around what the media's role in that is. Um, obviously, the media's role is multiple, right? To serve as a, as a benchmark for helping us figure out, you know, they like to say that journalism is the first draft of history, right? Things are happening as is, you know, they're writing things and, and keeping a record as it's happening. Uh, so sort of serve that role. Um, but one of the problems that we have had is that uh, media consumption has become so siloed. Talk about, mm -hmm. <laughs> talk about uh, individualism, right? But it has become so siloed, you know, partly because of social media. And so you can just get fed things uh, that reflect your views or beliefs or more of the same thing, as opposed to being more open-minded. Uh, so that's sort of the role of the media. But I think that the bigger meta question, even before we get to the media, is um, the the fact that we're no longer on the same page about basic things and basic facts. I can tell you that here in the United States, we can literally argue about whether or not the sky is blue. <laughs> so that has become the problem where we no longer agree on what the basic facts are. And you mm -hmm. cannot have a conversation when we're disagreeing about just basic facts. Um, you know, I like to say that um, I am a warrior <laughs> and my battlefield is my classroom. Mm -hmm. And I'm in a battle against cross-racy theories, <laughs> disinformation, mm -hmm the kinds of things that are slowly undermining democracies around the world, but also undermining our society. Uh -huh. One of the things I do, uh, and I started doing this. Uh, so I started teaching at where I am now at Moravian university in the fall of 2017. 
and you know I was new to this area of Pennsylvania um and <laughs> my first semester I would hear things like um 9/11 was an inside job mm-hmm. so those kinds of that seem to me out of this world conspiracy theories but there there are enclaves in our society where this is like normal right uh, and I was like oh and I would hear other things like that. This was, you know, so I, I decided that here was what I was going to do. Um, every class I've taught, and some students have taken my classes more than once, and they get to read this over and over again. Every class I've taught since then, my next semester after that, I started assigning a piece in The Guardian um, uh, by a British sociologist. And the piece is about denialism. Why do we reject the truth? And it's an excerpt from a book of his. Um, And in it, it talks about the roots of denialism, the roots of, you know, everything from Holocaust denial, which is Mm -hmm. egregious, to all Mm -hmm. kinds of other genocide denial, to conspiracy theories about vaccines, the works. Uh And a lot of time, on that first day, sort of discussing it, and I let everyone talk and, and all of that. And then I, I try to ask them, I was like, why do you think I'm assigning this piece? Because this has nothing to do with IR. It has nothing to do with international relations. Um, and some people will talk, and, and, and I'll say things like, well, around us, there's a lot of quicksand about whether the sky is blue or red, <laughs> about... Uh, January 6th was a peaceful protest (laughs) or whatever it is. (laughs) Um, In this classroom, we will stand on solid ground and it is everybody's responsibility to help us maintain solid ground. We can disagree about a lot of things. We can disagree about policy. We can disagree about approaches. We can disagree about theories. We will not disagree about the basic facts. Vaccines protect you from disease. Yes. The sky is blue. <laughs> January 6th was a violent insurrection and an attempt to, to overthrow the United States mm-hmm. government. Yes. Not a peaceful protest. No. Those are the facts. Yes. And if you want to remain in this class, we will, you, it was your responsibility and mine for us to be on solid ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I have been struggling with a lot is how people are able to deny what is directly in front of them, like what they're actually seeing. And in our conversation, I started wondering about, you know, we had been talking about roles earlier and the variety of different roles that we play. And sometimes those roles ask us to deny aspects of ourselves. And we're in a we are in a culture, and ha- and oh, I mean, always have been. There's been various phases of progress and regression, but that ask us and build in societal structures that ask us to that to deny aspects of ourselves. So if we are being conditioned to deny what we know to be true about ourselves, is that what's making it easier for us to deny? what we see happening in the world, because it's already a structure that we have ingrained in our neural pathways. 
That is such an amazing question. And some of it is a little bit outside of my <laughs> realm of expertise because I'm not a psychologist. But yeah. one of the things we do discuss when we do this reading is the idea that there is benign denial, right? And I, I like to say it as we lie to ourselves, like you just said. We deny some parts of ourselves that are unpleasant or considered unpleasant or unsavory or not acceptable, right? Uh-huh. Um, if you eat too much sugar, you might deny it. If you don't exercise enough, you might lie to yourself that that's not. If you do things that are unhealthy or you don't sleep enough or whatever it is, right? Um, but those things are benign. And they're benign because you're not hurting someone else. Right. Right. Uh, but if you deny that the Holocaust happened, uh, then you are further perpetuating the conditions that caused that genocide in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's no longer benign. Now, is it? easier for people to succumb to those kinds of things because they're used to um, this kind of benign denial, maybe. I think a psychologist will have a better explanation for that. But mm-hmm. it's not an unreasonable question, or at least it's not an unreasonable thought pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's making me wonder also about about the tension and that like, the violence that is developing because if there's a person, so let's use the example of what's currently happening to the LGBTQ2I plus community, right? So this is a community of people who have had to fight for their existence for a very long time and progress was being made. And so they were beginning to be able to live without self-denial. They were able to show up as themselves in the world. And if there are people who feel threatened by that, is it because they are feeling that there's still aspects of themselves that they have to deny that they are not, they feel like they have been told they're not allowed to accept that part of themselves. And so seeing people who are releasing themselves from the chains of denialism I'm wondering if that is what's creating some of that violent kind of reaction. Um, That's a great question. I mean, we've had progress and regression, you know, progress, backlash. It always happens. Uh And um, I'm not so sure that, I mean, it's plausible that I'm not so sure it's because people are denying some elements of themselves on an individual basis, maybe. But Mm -hmm. if we think of these things systematically or systemically, obviously it's about um, people wanting certain rights for themselves and denying it to others. Right. Because of the belief that only certain people should be accorded certain rights. And this has roots in... (laughs) white supremacy, Mm -hmm. roots in colonialism, roots in racism and all of that. Because for the longest time, power structures have been designed in such a way that only certain people were, or certain groups of people were accorded those rights. You know, the foundation of the United States is Mm -hmm. all men, right? Canada too. (laughs) Canada too. Never mind all other races, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of the backlash that we're seeing right now I think that picking on particularly trans people and trans kids, right? Because the progress was marriage equality and all of that. And, 
you know, everybody now accepts that. And so the people that they can pick on now is trans people. I think a lot mm-hmm. of that picking on is, is an attempt to respond to the shifts in society, the shifts in the evening a little bit, or at least the diffusing of power where other people are now seeing their rights respected and mm-hmm. the backlash is, oh, let's try to find somebody else to pick on. And right now it's trans kids, <laughs> trans yes. kids and trans people that are being picked on now. Tomorrow is going to be something else. You know, uh-huh. it was Mexicans, it was Irish, it was Blacks, it, whomever. It's, there's always something. And this is all an attempt to uh, prevent the diffusing of power and rights or the expansion of rights to as many people as possible. Right. Because there's this idea that power is a zero sum game, mm-hmm. right? That there's a limited amount and that there won't be enough. And so if people who don't, who have always had the power, release some of that power, they feel like there won't be enough for them to maintain what they have had. Right. And their right. advantages. Absolutely. Yes. Right. And we see this, uh, you know, people who do American politics and who study, um, <laughs> who study communities, one of the age-old questions is why do people vote against their own rights no, sorry mm-hmm. vote against their own interests right you see poor people in rural areas where this program is going to benefit you but you're going to vote against it but part of it is that you know and it doesn't matter what it is any kind of welfare program what it is is that they think they deserve it but other people should not have it right right and mm-hmm. so that's that's always been the pattern and it's all about uh the notion that only is only a particular group of people deserve full citizenship and full rights and full mm-hmm. access to all that our society can provide. Yeah. And on, you know, a common ground that you and I both have around education is that that notion of there not being enough. And so we gatekeep who gets what begins at kindergarten, right? Like that is so deeply ingrained in the cis, in the very colonial, very white supremacist system of education. And I'm not talking about the people. I mean, you and I both know there are brilliant people who are doing really good work. However, Within a system that is so rigid and holds so much power, it's, again, that role, like your role as a warrior bangs up against that system that has been indoctrinating people since they were five years old. Yeah. How? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I couldn't agree more. And I I think that... um... You know, I can speak for, you know, K to 12 education in the United States. I'll tell you that people show up in my 100 level class, especially the ones that are first years with different levels of preparation. Yes. And that is emblematic of the structures within which our education system is situated. And so... 
you end up finding people who are a lot prepared because of the kind of school that they went to or the zip code in which their school is located versus those that are completely ignorant of a lot of things, a lot of things uh, because of where they're located. And so, or if they have been taught in ways where they were actually not encouraged to question or encouraged to be curious, but just to regurgitate or produce, or, you know, like I say, uh, they, they were taught to the test. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. So I have had, um, in my classroom, typically I give take home exams and they're open book, open note, because uh-huh. I care less about what you regurgitate and how you think and how you make arguments. And so when I, when I tell them, we're going to do exam revision, I say, you come with questions. If you don't have any questions, there's nothing to talk about. I'm not going to go over everything we've done the whole semester. And they're like, uh, some people will say, can, can we talk about what the questions will be? And I'm like, what? Why would we talk about what the questions will be? And I was a little confused at the beginning. And then I realized, oh, that's what's happening in the K to 12 classrooms. The day before the test, you talk about all the things that will be on the test. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, it's not going to help you because we can talk about what's going to be in the test, but it's not going to matter because it's everything we've talked about in class anyway. Uh, and it's more application and how you think and how you argue. Um, so you are absolutely right that educational structures, especially K to K to 12 education, which are foundational, um, vary and, and that in turn produces a certain kind of preparedness in some students and unpreparedness in others. And we sort of see that in the classroom. And um, you can imagine, uh, forgetting the source for that for a minute, let's just think about the consequences, right? When you have a society that is largely educated in such a way that critical thinking is absent and you can't ask questions or you can't even like logically follow things and, and think about how they make sense, then you can have a January 6th. You yes. can have people told all kinds of cockamamie stories online and they will believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You just hit on, it was a couple of sentences ago, but you just brought it back around there too, where you're talking about the system that is developing, we're working on creating robots rather than thinkers right Mm -hmm. in ontario there's a literacy movement that's happening here um in response to an inquiry that happened where children who have learning disabilities were not being taught appropriately how to read that is true and i am not here to argue argue that at all like there definitely are failures of the system in teaching students who learn in non-traditional ways how to read and there are some systems and structures that have been developed through research that are really effective in supporting those students with learning how to read however those strategies are now being proliferated throughout the entire population and they're focused entirely on decoding. And so the elements of our curriculum around questioning and creativity and thinking and wondering are being pushed aside 
because of this because of this one element. And again, I'm not saying it's not important. We know, like knowing how to decode is a necessary part of literacy instruction, but it's mm -hmm. one part, but it is a tool. But when we look at it in that way, it is a tool of creating a generation of students who do not think, question, or wonder. Mm -hmm. And that is what I find particularly terrifying about what is happening in the system right now. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, we talk a lot about the threats, you know, that I tell my students that the kinds of things that keep me up at night is all yeah. the kinds of threats to democracy and the rise in authoritarianism, even in places where you didn't expect it. Um, but the, the, everything we just talked about, the lack, the, the breeding people who can't think yes. is also a huge threat. To democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And the eliminating of the multitude of narratives, right? What we see with books being banned and the elimination of courses and the protests against what is allowed to be taught in schools, that is narrowing us down yet again to a single narrative, mm -hmm. which is what you worked for what I worked for over my entire career to move away from so that we could say to students, bring in every aspect of your identity because they're all part of what makes you whole, right? Going back to the beginning of our conversation, that seed of truth of who you really are. We can't ask you to deny that part of who you are and be a fulsome learner who feels empowered to question and to question power. Well, yeah, we just no, had our whole absolutely. conversation together, didn't we? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> and now you are engaging in work around supporting students to be able to access post-secondary education. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening in that part of your world? Sure. Um, so one of the stark realities that um, inspired this work, I mean, this is something I've done for for a long time informally over the years. People will ask me, oh, how do I apply to college? What do I do? What strategies and all of that? And I, t I give that information out, you know, ad hoc. Uh, but one of the things that inspired me to make it a more formal process and program right now is the level of education debt in the United States. Mm -hmm. The level of education debt in the United States is stands at about $1.75 trillion with a T. <laughs> and yeah. this is because over the decades, college costs have increased dramatically, but household incomes have not kept pace. And so families are increasingly relying on loans to fund college. Uh, what that means is that at some point that, that bubble is going to burst. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, and we also know, and this is the story that I told, right? Talking about narratives that, um, you know, college is supposed to be a vehicle for upward mobility, which it is because if you look at the data, people with college degrees earn more over a lifetime than people without on average. Right. But. If you incur so much debt that you spend the rest of your life paying it off, 
then that advantage of college being a vehicle for upward mobility is canceled out. Right. And so, uh-huh. uh, I said to myself, you know what? I actually can do something about this. <laughs> I, I, I know what to do to get into college. I know what to do to get funding and I can teach people to do it. Uh, and so that's how, uh, College, the College Fully Funded program was born. And basically we focus on helping students, particularly from communities who are historically excluded from higher education, find, apply, and get accepted at colleges with full funding so that they do not have to take on that debt. Mm-hmm. And that's such critical work on all of those levels because connected to our conversation before, that debt level, the, it, it becomes yet another... Oper- or an- another modality for gatekeeping, mm-hmm. right? It's a great way of shutting those doors and again saying, yes, this is for upward mobility and we're going to protect the people who get in here. And that is that is such a detrimental to society, that to the societies that we are trying to build mm-hmm. and again, to, to democracy. So your work in supporting students to be able to do that in a way that is accessible is it's game changing. I'm sure for the students that you're working with. Absolutely. And it's, uh, I'm so glad (laughs) it's funny. Something profound just happened here because you just connected the dots with getting a college education that doesn't drown you in debt to protecting our democracy. (laughs) That's a dot there because um, when you have societies that lift everyone up, you're less likely to have unrest and disaffection and all of that that make people susceptible to all kinds. And the the research shows this, you know, people who research conflict like I do, there's a Mm -hmm. connection with, you know, unemployment and, you know, a large population that's uneducated with a propensity to engage in violent acts. So... Uh, absolutely. There, there is that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And isn't that what we're, what we're working towards, right? right? A society that lifts everyone up so that we can all have the human experience that we are meant to have. And the human experience includes everyone. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, in, uh, in IR, we talk about human security, right? And one of the definitions of human security is based on the capabilities approach, the extent to which all humans can be all that they are meant to be or they're capable of being, all that they can be and do, right? And for people to be all that they can be and do, then we have to remove all of the impediments, what Amatya Sen calls all of the unfreedoms (laughs) that Uh stand in the way. Of, of, of reaching their highest potential. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for this conversation today. Thank you for the work that you are doing. It, it is good for my heart to know that there are warriors who are out there who are doing this work and who are leading the way for the generation of, of humans who are coming behind because what I will say what just one last point. One of the things that gets under my skin is when people say, oh, the kids are going to fix it. Like they're going to do it. Okay. But that doesn't mean that it abdicates us of responsibility. 
right? Do I believe that children and students and young people have ideas that will lead us forward? Of course I do. And our job is to clear the way, not to just stand back. It's up to us to be there to work with them because they didn't make this mess. <laughs> and neither Absolutely. did we. Yeah. Yeah. And neither did we in many cases, but it's because there's that there's this resistance to intergenerational working together and supporting each other that has created, you know, barrier after barrier or expectations of children to fix things that it's not up to them to fix. So thank you. Thank Absolutely. you for being one of those people. Absolutely. And that's what sustainability is all about, right? Not robbing tomorrow's resources to fix our desires for today and then leave it to the kids to fix, right? And yeah. so if we do believe in sustainability, then we can't rob the future to pay for today's conveniences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that idea of sustainability, I think it gets sort of pigeonholed in the environmental realm mm -hmm. with which is like, that's what a necessary part of that conversation, but it also is essential in, in humanity mm -hmm. in that we are able to move forward in a way that is sustainable to bring forward, to bring everybody forward. Right. So that everyone who has those seeds of light planted in them when they are young, have the opportunity to see that light grow and lead us forward in a better way, in a supported way. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this conversation. I will make sure that I put your contact information in the show notes. So any families out there who are looking for a way to get their kids to college and university, it's, it's, an, it's a definite avenue to, to walk down. And again, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. I had a blast. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid.